Christmas Eve. Are you excited to be here? Are you glad you came? I hope so. Uh, we're not done yet, but I hope you enjoy uh, Christmas Eve here at Grace. I love Christmas time. Uh, not only are we worshiping the birth of our Savior, remembering that, celebrating that, but also typically for a lot of us, Christmas is a time that we can get together with family, and I love that too. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I decided to bring my mother from Colorado out uh, to be with us in Ohio for several weeks. Actually, we don't e even have an end date, sometime in late January maybe or so, but I was making plans to go get her, and Pam's like, you know, you can fly from Detroit to Denver and back for like $89. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. So I flew out and just flew with her back and brought her home, and while we're in the airport, uh, waiting for our flight, uh, we were grabbing a snack. My mom's 91, and we, we both uh, grabbed a Big Mac to eat, and we were sitting there, and I, I took a picture of her eating that, and I posted it to Facebook. I almost never do stuff like that, but I just did that. It almost went viral. I mean, it was just, you know, right there. Uh, a lot of people like that, so it was just fun uh, doing that, and, and got her home, and just ha had a blast uh, celebrating, and, and she's here now, and we're having a great time. Uh, it, that being in the airport reminds me of a story. And so there's a guy named Bob. He's a businessman, and he was uh, working real hard, but he was trying to get home, making connecting flights to get home to celebrate Christmas with his family. And it had been a long week, and he was sort of frustrated and burnt out, and he's making flights, and he's, he's in this one airport making a connection. He has a short layover. He's hungry. He's tired. He just wants to get home. He sees a coffee shop, a little kiosk. He goes over there. He orders a coffee and then a little sleeve of those mini donuts. Do you know what I'm talking about? He got a pack of those. And then he went. He wanted to sit down to eat them, and he looked, and the place is just packed out, and there are no seats available. But then over on the other side, he sees this one table with one guy sitting there, but there's actually two chairs. And so he makes his way through there, finds the chair, realizes the guy's alone, drops his, you know, his carry-on, takes off his coat, drapes it on the chair in front of him, puts his stuff down, his coffee down, and then he sits down, and he's just like, and he is tired, you know, and, and the guy just kind of smiles at him, and then he reaches over, he opens up his little pack of donuts, he's got his coffee, and he eats one of his little mini donuts. And, and while he's doing that, pretty soon, that man that was sitting across a table, he reaches over and grabs his pack of donuts, and he takes one out, and he eats it. And, and Bob's just sitting there going, whoa, that, that's kind of bold. I mean, who does that? This, these are my donuts. And, uh, and so pretty soon, he reaches for, Bob reaches, he's going to get another donut, but as he does it, you know, he kind of uses his hand to pull the donuts a little closer to his coffee, you know, to kind of bring a little territory here. So he pulls his donuts over, he grabs one, and he's eating a second donut. About the time he's doing that, as he's eating the second donut, the other guy, he doesn't care. He, he sits up and he reaches even further across the table, and he reaches in and he grabs another donut. And Bob's just like, wow, a little frustrated. And, and he's thinking about saying something to the guy, but it's a crowded airport. He's tired. He doesn't want to make a scene. So he just kind of rolls with it. He's just like this. This is just, well, this isn't right. And, uh, and pretty soon he notices as he's contemplating this in his mind, the guy glances at his watch. And the other guy, he gathers his stuff together. and He stands up to go connect with his flight. And Bob's like, oh, well, great. 
But then before he leaves, there's one last donut in his little sleeve of donuts. And the guy standing there reaches in, grabs the last donut. He breaks it in half. He puts the other donut back down on the package. And he kind of smiles at Bob and nods and pops that in his mouth and walks off. And Bob's just like, you got to be kidding me. I'm still hungry. I've only had two donuts. I'm not eating that half donut. I don't know where this guy's hands have been. His hands have been all over that half a donut. And so he's sitting there, he's steaming a little bit, and then pretty soon he realizes, oh, it's time for my flight. So he gets up, he grabs his coat, puts it on, throws his trash away. He reaches down for his carry-on luggage, and then that's when it happens. He sees his donuts, his package donuts that he purchased sitting on top of his carry-on luggage. And so he realizes this whole time that he's been, he's been mad and frustrated, he's thinking, this guy is taking my stuff. He's taking something from me. When in reality, Bob's sitting there thinking, no, he wasn't taking anything from me. He was sharing his stuff with me. He was giving to me. It was actually an act of generosity. That's the way Christmas is with people today. Christmas is all about the fact that God has intervened into the world. And a lot of people have the attitude, well, God has come to take something from me, to take my freedom or or to take what I want to do away from me. But it's not that way at all. God has come to be generous to us, to bring us a gift. That's the whole meaning of Christmas. It all boils down to that. Christmas is about God's generosity, and don't miss it. Because God's been working this plan throughout all of human history. He created a plan that would bring us back to God. And a way for us to be saved from the right and just penalty of our sin. And and so a lot of people say saved. I always hear that terminology. Saved from what? Saved from the right and just penalty, as I said, of our sin. So God creates mankind. He gives us free will so we don't have to follow him. But because of that, we've all sinned against him. And then as we read the first half of the Bible, the entire Old Testament, it's really just a story of God wanting to connect with his creation. But us, we keep him at an arm's distance. We keep turning away. And he even creates a people Uh, his people that will show others and teach them about God, but even they keep turning away. Even they keep following false gods and following stuff that they want to do. They turn away from God to do their own thing, to follow their own desires, and it just happened over and over again, just like we do. And God then sent messengers, leaders, and prophets who said, hey, there's coming a time that we won't be struggling like this. There's coming a time when there will be a Savior born into the world, onto our planet, who will save us from our sins, who can break this cycle. For example, 750 years before Christ was born, the prophet Isaiah said, for, unto us, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, 
prince of peace. And prophets kept saying things like this, that he would be from the line of David, that he would be born in Bethlehem. And we found out more and more about this coming Messiah, but the people kept waiting and waiting until one day when an angel showed up to a priest named Zacharias. And this angel told Zacharias that even though he and his wife were advanced in years and childless, they were going to have a child. And they were to name this child John, and their child John would introduce the Messiah to the world. Amazing. And then just a few months after that, this same angel named Gabriel, he shows up to a poor, um, engaged, virgin teenager named Mary and says to Mary, you will have a child who will be from God. You are carrying the son of God and his name will be Jesus. And she's like, well, how, how can that happen? I've, I've never been with a man, and it's going to happen. And then an angel tells her husband, Joseph, and then we, the events to history start unfolding that God's son is coming, the Savior of the world. And really, th that first Christmas drew a line through history that first of all, we need to recognize. Secondly, we need to understand it. And third, we need to respond to it. And so that's what I want you to, to get this afternoon. First of all, the line of Christmas in history. We don't actually know the exact day that Jesus was born. We celebrate it on December 25th, and actually early Christians started celebrating it that day. And that's kind of interesting as you look at the history of that, because this was now in the Roman world, and in the Roman world, they worshiped a god, Saturn, and they had this festival in December called Saturnalia. And Saturnalia, this big festival, a lot of pagan stuff going on during it, lasted from December 17th to December 23rd or 24th, depending on the calendar. And right in the middle of that, you might recognize, is the winter solstice. Winter solstice is December 21st. And then, as you know, that's the day when daylight hours are the fewest and the night lasts the longest. December 21st is literally the darkest day of the year. And so these early Christians decided to counterbalance the pagan world by waiting until this pagan celebration was over and then celebrating the birth of their Savior, Jesus Christ, on the 25th because they knew what the Apostle John had taught them that Jesus is the light of the world. John 1.5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Later in that same chapter, verse 9 and 10, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. 
He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. December 25th. That wasn't the only reason, though. We know that early Christians knew that some of their own scholars, for example, one man who kind of one of those long ancient names, Sextus Julius Africanus, he was a Jewish scholar who lived maybe in Libya or sometime part of his life in Jerusalem, and he had calculated the, the birth of Jesus. And the way he plotted it all out using a Jewish calendar as he came to the conclusion that the Annunciation was in March and then that the birth of Jesus was in late December and he actually pinpointed the day, December 25th. And then that's the day that Christians adopted to celebrate their Savior. But that's not the remarkable thing about this Christmas line in history. What's amazing is It's a line in our history, and no matter where you go in the world, you can see it. Because we just look at a calendar, and we see that our calendar is divided. And what's it divided based on? You know, we have B.C., which stands for before Christ. And then we have A.D., which in English we think of after death, but it actually doesn't mean after death. It actually means anno domini, which means in the year of our Lord. So the years during Jesus' life are counted in the year of our Lord, and, and then it goes on. Of course, there's a lot of people in our world today that don't like that reference to Christ. You know, in those terms, B.C. and A.D. So they've given some alternative initials. I mean, you're probably aware of this, right? They have BCE and CE, which stands for before common era and common era. And it's interesting because I mean, we, we can talk about that and we could use that, but if you ever ask the question, well, what divides BCE with BC? And anybody will tell you, well, that dividing line is right around the birth of Christ, Christ Jesus. So it doesn't really matter how you look at it. This dividing line has been drawn, and it's all around the birth of Jesus. And that birth happened just like this, as Luke records for us in chapter 2 of his gospel. Here's what he says. And now... Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. We might just stop there and go, why all these details? Why are we talking about Caesar, Quirinius, who's governor, what year it was? Because this is not a once upon a time kind of a story. Luke is a historian in the first century, and he explains this earlier in his book that he set out to document an account. And unlike the other gospel writers who were eyewitnesses, Luke is documenting this from eyewitness sources. And so he's placing the birth of Christ because it's an historical event. He's placing it at a moment of time in history during Caesar. Augustus, and while Quirinius was governor of Syria. It continues in verse 3, says, And everyone was on his way to register for the census. 
each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. Interesting that it says it that way because this is reminding us, it's acknowledging that Mary and Joseph went on to have other children by natural means, and some of them were sons. One of them was James, who wrote the book of James in the New Testament. That verse continues, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And so we can all read... We've all probably imagined this story before. This is Joseph and Mary. They're from the heritage, the line of King David from ancient times. David's city is in Bethlehem. Uh, the, the Caesar, Augustus, he wants to do a census to sort of correct his tax roster so he could tax the people more effectively but in Judah, he's saying, everybody goes back to their own ancestral city. So now Joseph and Mary, and she's pregnant, they're engaged. They have to travel from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. Bethlehem's just outside of Jerusalem, but it's 90 miles, the route they probably would have taken from Nazareth up north, uphill, up to Bethlehem. They do that. They get to this little village Bethlehem, about six miles outside of Jerusalem. And it's packed because everybody else is doing the same thing. And they can't find any room. We've heard that story. And, and everybody's packed. There's no place for them. And so they end up giving birth to the Son of God in an animal stall. He was laid in a manger. Now, the word manger, it's funny because we hear the word manger. And a lot of times we think peaceful serenity, the cows are lowing, you know, the sheep are clapping, you know, we're just, we, we think about this as a peaceful and serene. That's not how stables typically are. I mean, think like a stable that maybe you've been in, hard packed, uneven ground, dung, urine everywhere, the stench of it hanging in the air, cobwebs everywhere just out of reach. And then a manger is technically a feeding trough. It's not the stall. A manger is the feeding trough for animals. And I don't know if you've been around a lot of animals. They are not nice eaters. I mean, think, you think of cattle and stuff. Anybody ever watch rodeo? And, and, and you're watching bull riding? And, and what do you see when you're seeing that bull? There's snot flying everywhere. You know what I'm saying? This, this, this is a manger. This is dirty, grimy, there's mice around because they feed these animals, and Jesus is laid into this feeding trough. It's the least hygienic place they could probably think of, you know, that they ended up in, not by their choice. I mean, we do just the opposite, right? We have our children where? Typically in a hospital, the very cleanest place we know to go to. Like our house isn't clean enough. Let's go to the hospital where it's really clean. I mean, everything disinfected. And it wasn't like that first Christmas. It was, it was messy. 
So we see the line of Christmas in history, but that's actually not enough. That line in history must be understood. We must understand why that's there, what's going on. Because anybody in the world can see it just by looking at a calendar and seeing the year 2021. That's 2,021 years since Jesus was born, basically. It's got to be understood. And this kind of brings up expectations. Like, when we think of Christmas... We have expectations. It's Christmas Eve. So how many of you tomorrow are expecting that, you know, you may have family this, but what you're pretty much expecting is you're going to be in a warm house and you're going to have plenty of food. Anybody that apply, I think I'll be in a warm house and have plenty of food. Anybody? Yeah, four or five of us. The rest of you, I don't know how you're celebrating, but yeah. <laughs> this is what we expect. But I'm here to tell you, Christmas isn't always what we expect. I know I've shared with my, uh, the, our church family before a few years ago how one Christmas, I was expecting that. I was working on Christmas Eve. I got off a little early. A blizzard hit Denver while I was working. I was actually trying to go down to Pueblo to, to be with my family during Christmas. And a blizzard dropped 24 inches of snow in 12 hours shut down the town. I knew I couldn't make it to Pueblo, at least a couple hours away, and I was lucky to make it to my neighborhood. I actually had to abandon my truck in my neighborhood before I could get home, trudged through the snow, got to my door. It's Christmas Eve. Everything is shut down. I know I'm going to be snowed in for the next couple of days. We have no food in our house, me or my roommate. He left about a week earlier. He's from Pueblo too, and we're sharing a place. I didn't buy any food knowing I was going to be gone. Nothing, although I reminded my church family, except for a small can of SpaghettiOs, and I don't like SpaghettiOs. That's what I had Christmas Day. That's all that was there. The next Christmas, I expected a much better Christmas. I had actually resigned my position. I went out to Virginia. I was in graduate school. And the first year I was there, I decided to live in the dorms. Didn't really have a place yet. Didn't have time to find a place. Put me in the dorms. I was there. I had gotten a job. And then it came Christmas break. And I realized, you know, I really couldn't afford to go home. I needed to work. So I stayed over Christmas break to work. And so that's what I did. I was staying in my dorm room. Unfortunately, I'd closed the dorm. As I reflect back on this, I'm not sure that I was supposed to be there, but that's another detail. They closed the heat, shut off the heat in the dorm. And so my dorm room inside was just above freezing, about 35 degrees. And then I realized there was, I had a little sink in my dorm room. And if I turned on the hot water, I had hot water, which was nice. You could warm up your hands. I had hot water. And I realized that if I plugged the sink drain and just turned on the hot water a little bit, that it would fill up and then go over the overflow in the sink. And that would keep the sink warm. And then the warm sink would raise the temperature in the room up to about like 40 degrees. And so I did that. Well, while I was working, some other guys who had families, I mean, I'm just by myself in a dorm room. They, they were married, they had families, and I realized, you know, Christmas Day's coming up. So I offered to work some extra shifts for them so they could be home with their kids on Christmas Day. So on Christmas Eve, I worked a couple shifts, and then I was off. And then Christmas Eve, about 11 o'clock, I worked 24 hours straight, three shifts in a row, covering for other guys. 
And when I got off of that shift, hadn't really eaten anything. What I had in my room was cereal and milk. And, the, and I didn't have a refrigerator, but I could just sit the milk by my window seal. And it, you know, I could probably sit it anywhere in the room and it'd be fine. And so, and I couldn't wait. It was 11 o'clock. I'm heading to the, my room, my dorm room, and I'm starving and I'm tired. My attitude's okay, but, but I'm almost getting hangry. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm ready to eat. I'm ready to sleep. I'm just kind of wiped out. And I go into my room and I look over to the milk because I'm ready for some cereal. And I realize there's two, inch of, two inches of ice on the inside of my window, which may have had something to do with me running that hot water in the sink and creating steam, I don't know. But also in that block of ice was my milk that was frozen solid. And so I grabbed the milk out of the ice. It's frozen solid. I realized that I could warm it up in the sink, but I'm exhausted. So I just decide, hey, I'll worry about this tomorrow. I'm just going to go to bed. It's 40 degrees. I crawl into my bed, pretty much fully clothed, pull all the covers I have, curl up in a little ball, wishing I had one small can of SpaghettiOs that I don't even like. So we don't know what Christmas will bring. Sometimes it's just not what we expect. Although when you go through something like that, every Christmas is great from then on. Because, hey, it's, hey, I got food. It's great. Christmas, the first Christmas, was not what Mary and Joseph expected. It's not the way they expected to have a child, that's for sure. And it's not the way they expected for the Messiah to be born into the world. By the way, that first Christmas is not what the Jewish people were expecting either. Even though they knew the Messiah was coming, and even though if they paid careful attention, they would know he should be showing up any time now. But he showed up in a way they didn't expect. And that was true for common people as well, like the shepherds, because they're the next group of people that come up in our story. We left off there in verse 7. And we continue in verse 8. The first Christmas was not the way anyone expected the Messiah to come. So verse 8 continues. He says, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's Messiah. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. And then suddenly appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he's pleased. And when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so they came in a hurry and they found their way to Mary and Joseph, and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made, made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told to them by the shepherds. But Mary 
treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Shepherd, the shepherds went back, glorifying God, glorifying and praising God for all that they'd heard and seen, just as has, had been told them. And so we have this traditional text about the birth of Christ, and very well known, very popular, but probably within those verses I just read, probably the most popular verse is verse 14. The most well-known verse of all this where it says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. That's the most popular verse, and it's also the most misunderstood verse, and often the most mistranslated verse because of that. You see, just like the Jewish nation, just like the people before us, just like the people B.C., we are people who turn away from God to do our own thing, to use the freedom that God's given us to really walk away from him. And that sin alienates us, separates us from our holy God. And without realizing it, Scripture tells us that in that kind of a mindset, we are actually at war with God. We don't think of it that way, but that's what Scripture tells us. And in that sense, we need peace with God, and that's what the angels are talking about. You see, we don't think it's true, but if we're honest, we'll realize that inside every heart, every human heart, is this propensity for us to say, Hey, hey, God, I'll be making decisions for me. Only I know what's best for me. No one, not even you, God, can tell me what to do. And we're alienated from God. Paul put that concept this way. He said, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. You see, the hostility toward God that we all end up having, it comes in many forms. What we see maybe the most easily is irreligious people. People who aren't religious, people who don't care about God, maybe they don't believe in God. And so they're irreligious people. You know, they kind of say, hey, I'll live however I want. I will not subject myself to a God who may or may not even exist. I'm out. The problem with that is that it's, it's prideful because you're setting yourself up above your creator. And it's not only the sin of pride, it also causes some insecurity because there's this little piece of you that keeps telling you, well, what if there is a God? I mean, look around at the universe. It's perfectly balanced. Everything happened. We have life. Where did that come? Maybe there is a God. And then that brings insecurity and fear into your life. But the irreligious, that's only one way to be hostile to God. Religious people can also be hostile to God. Because religious people tend to think this way. They think, hey, if I do enough good and moral things, 
It will obligate God to bless me and give me what I want. But see, that also causes pride and insecurity. Pride, because people like that think, I'm better than these other people. I live a more moral life. I do good things like they don't. So I'm better than them, so God has to bless me. That's pride. But it also brings insecurity and fear, just like the non-religious people, in that when you're working that way to earn favor from God, you never really know if you've done enough. How do I know that I've done enough good things that God will do everything that I want? Both attitudes are hostile to God. And that's why God reveals to us in his word another attitude that we can have, and that is that God is offering us, and it started at Christmas, peace and salvation as a gift through faith in his son. And then only then when we receive salvation that way, only then are we humbled out of our pride and loved out of our fear and insecurity. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans 5.10 starts out this way, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. You see, Jesus came to bring peace, but not everybody experiences that peace. The only way we get that peace, it's only peace for, on whom his favor rests. We have to respond to his offer of salvation. And so the line of Christmas needs to be recognized. It needs to be understood. But most importantly, the line of Christmas needs to be responded to. It's not enough just to know it's there or even understand why it's there. It's not just a line in history. It's more than a concept that we must understand. Christmas is a line that runs through our own lives and our own hearts. And we have to recognize that, and then we choose to cross that line or reject God's gift for us. Jesus came because we've all alienated ourselves from God by living for ourselves and putting ourselves in his place, and that's wrong. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. People wonder, why did Jesus have to die? Is that just overacting on God's part? That just seems brutal. It seems terrible. Well, because since the beginning, God's been teaching us that sin has serious consequences. And God did not create a world where we couldn't sin because that would be a world where we couldn't think for ourselves and we couldn't choose to have a relationship with him voluntarily. So he creates a world where we have free will, 
that creates the possibility of us to voluntarily have a relationship with God. But we've all missed the mark because we've all done things that God says is wrong. But there's still hope because God had a plan. And his plan was to send his only son, Jesus Christ, who is God for eternity. God exists, one God and three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. And Jesus comes, clothes himself in humanity, and ultimately came that Christmas day, mainly that one day, about 33 years later, that he would give his life. He would voluntarily allow himself to be put to death, and therefore he would be separated from God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He would be separated from God to pay our penalty, what we deserve, because we all deserve to be separated from God because of our sin. But he had no sin, so when he paid that price, that can stand for us. But the only way that we get the benefit from what Christ has done is if we come to him on his terms, and he's saying that we have to respond to him in faith, in trust, in acknowledging who Jesus is and what he did, and that that's the only way that we can be reconciled with a holy and righteous God who must punish wrongdoing. Because in that way, our wrongs have been paid for. But yet we can still have a relationship with God forever. And so that brings us to a point where you have to make a decision. At some point in history, you have to cross the line. You have to make the decision to put your faith in Christ who died for you. And that's the most important decision that you'll ever make. And so before we close this service, we have some more music, but we want to make room for that. And, and it's weird because this is one of those decisions, it's, it's probably the most private, the most personal decision you'll ever make. And I understand that. But just to let you know, God doesn't intend for you to keep it private. God intends for you to share that decision with other people who have done the same thing, we call that church. And so right now, I want to give you this opportunity before we move forward, that if you can just admit your sin, and some people struggle with that, admit that you've done wrong. And if you believe Jesus is who he said he is, and he came and he died on the cross to pay for my sins and your sins, all you have to do is call out to God, cry out to him, asking him for, give, for forgiveness based on what Christ has done and nothing else, Christ alone. There's nothing we can do in ourselves to make up for our sin. And so if you're ready to do that, I would like to lead you in a prayer. Express this faith in prayer. And I'll lead you in that. You, you don't have to say it out loud if you don't want to. I mean... God knows your heart and your thoughts, but don't miss this moment to respond to Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Just pray something like this sincerely in your own heart to God. Father God, I admit that I have sinned against you, Lord, and I know that you love me so much 
that you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to come, be born, which is what we're celebrating, but also that he would grow up and live a sinless life and then allow himself to be killed in order to pay for my sins. And so, God, I'm putting my trust in Jesus, only Jesus, for my salvation. And I'm asking you, Father, that through your spirit you would come into my life and help me to follow you. Help me to be who you want me to be. In Christ's name, amen. If you've prayed that prayer, and as far as you know, for the first time, whether you're irreligious or religious or you don't know where you stand with God, you pray that prayer, God will come into your life and he'll change you from the inside out. And, and we would like to know that. We would love it if you came to room one and told us that. But you may not know us or trust us. Hey, we get that. And so here's how we would like to know that from you. We have uh, some baskets on each side of the platform here. In those baskets is a little brown bag, kind of a burlap bag. That's got some information. It's our gift to you. We would like you to have that, that you can read and follow up with in the privacy of your own home. And just by taking one of those, and you just have to come up and get it on your own. We're not tracking you or anything. We'll, we'll just know when those bags are missing that someone made a decision. And we will hope that if you live in our area, you'll come back and learn more about Jesus. Here's what Scripture says in John 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, these are the words of Jesus. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's God's desire that we not only live in the light of Christ, but we share the light of Christ in a dark dark world.